Hello, this is FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Dot Esports Podcast Network. I'm Ahmad Khan of Tom's Guide. Popular Twitch streamer Felix XQC Langiel was met with a week suspension from Twitch following his broadcast of the Olympic events. He was hit by a DMCA notice by the International Olympic Committee, which forced the week suspension. Langiel filed a counterclaim, which, for all intents and purposes, threw the ball back at the IOC's court. If the IOC wants to move forward, it could file a lawsuit against Langiel. This has sparked a conversation around the limits of fair use. In Langell's case, he was watching a badminton event to which he was adding his own expressive reactions and commentary on top. The fair use doctrine does allow for unlicensed use of copyright-protected works in certain circumstances, but the content has to be transformative. Per copyright.gov, quote, transformative uses are those that add something new with a further purpose or different character and do not substitute for the original use of the work, end quote. Joining me today is Brandon Huffman, a digital media lawyer at Odin Media and Law. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Brandon, when it comes to this case, so far only a counterclaim has been filed, which, you know, was able to get him his channel back, but it has not progressed into a full lawsuit. Uh, so this is essentially on the IOC to sue. Brandon, in your opinion, will this progress into a lawsuit? It's hard to say. Um, I think there's a there's a reasonable chance that it just goes away. I mm-hmm. think a lot of rights holders use the DMCA to sort of shoot across the bow and say, hey, knock it off, and then don't always follow up when there is a counter notice filed. But if they did, it would be uh, a federal district court lawsuit would be the next step, as you said. Interesting, interesting. I, I, so the International Olympic Committee, I guess it's internationally based, so it would then fall into federal courts. Huh? I hadn't considered that. Yeah, actually, the way the DMCA works is anytime there is a, uh, anytime there's a DMCA counter notice, the counter notifier is consenting to jurisdiction in the federal courts. Mm. Uh, uh, usually, it's the federal court where the platform sits if if the individuals involved aren't in the U.S. So it would be California courts, California federal court. I see, I see. I mean, when it comes to the IOC, I assume it has more than enough money and legal might to take on such a case. Uh, And considering that streaming is just growing more and more in popularity, whether it be on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, would this be worthwhile for the IOC to take on for future Olympic events? I mean, you know, the... Uh, Winter Olympics are taking place in China, and China, of course, is a massive, massive uh, streaming environment and ecosystem. Yeah, I think if if I were in the IOC's shoes, I don't know that this case necessarily would be the one I'd pursue. I don't know the de- the the full details of their thinking, obviously, but mm-hmm. I think it it's probably been on their radar for at least two to three Olympics, and they're probably looking at ways to ensure that you know, their broadcast rights remain valuable to their broadcast partners. Hmm. When it comes to the content itself, I, I, I think that generally in terms of creativity, society, at least American society, agrees that uh, there has to be a level in which you can use the other work, whether it be for criticism, you know, where it's, or it's, I guess, adding something of value uh, for the end consumer of people watching. Uh, but of course, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to define some of these terms. And in Langiel's case, was his rebroadcast of the Olympics, was it transformative enough? So I actually haven't seen the original video. Mm. And 
I, I've struggled to find it. I think maybe he's left that video itself down. Uh, I see. It, or maybe I just haven't been able to find it because I'm not good enough at Twitch. I don't know. But um, <laughs> so I, uh, so I haven't seen that video. But in general, I think it's important to point out that transformative uses, whether something is transformative or not, obviously, like that's a big question, and and. It really like the big thing with a sports broadcast is if it acts as a substitute for the original. Uh, but it's also important to point out that that's only one of the four factors hmm. that the courts would look at. The courts would look at the the entirety of the four factor test and a judge or a jury would would then decide if it meets that test. What are some of the factors in that four factor test? Sure. So, so the transformative use, as you mentioned, the, so the first factor is the purpose and character of the use itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so if it's comment or criticism, like this may have been, if it's transformative in that way, or if it is, um, you know, moving something into a documentary for mass news purposes or something like that, that's, mm -hmm. that's the purpose and character of the use. If it's, uh, so factor two is the nature of the copyrighted work itself. So certain things like a like an unpublished diary for example while it's a diary you don't usually think of as a creative work it is a creative work it's a, it's mm. a written work and because it's unpublished that character gives it sort of more weight in the uh in the infringement category if somebody takes it and uses it i see, I see. Um, similarly you know something that is less protected like like a compilation of facts right like a like a encyclopedia that literally just lists out a bunch of facts is going to have less protection than you know a, a manuscript or a creative work um factor three would be the amount and substantiality of what's used so in this instance it's hard to weigh that because I don't know if the IOC or if a court in this case would look at what was used as a portion of the badminton broadcast or mm -hmm. as a portion of the Olympics as an entire product, right? But it, you can imagine in a different scenario, if I play, you know, the entirety of John Wick, I've used the entirety. If I play just the action sequences, maybe I've only played 10 minutes of the movie but probably the rights holders in that instance are still going to be upset with that use because it takes the core of why someone might watch that movie and uses it. I see. So to jump off that example, let's say you are a movie stunts expert and you use 10 minutes of the John Wick films. And let's say after a stunt was performed, you went over to a whiteboard and you know explained like how they might have done this. Um, maybe that could be seen as more transformative than you just saying like whoa did you check out did you see that gunshot or that jump yeah i think i think that's right I, and and it's important to say there's no bright line right so mm -hmm. i think what you've done is you've illustrated a great way to move from dark gray to lighter gray right but there's okay. no there's no black and white with fair use unfortunately yeah you know I, you also spoke to nathan grayson of the washington post regarding this and you 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 said that a lot of this stuff is very case by case, mm -hmm. uh, you know, why can't there be more defined terms as to what and what does not account for fair use? So I, I will get to that in just one second. I just, for anybody who's keeping track, we only mentioned 
three factors. So I just want to mention oh, the fourth very quickly. <laughs> so the fourth factor is the the effect of uh, the use on the market for the work. Mm. So in this instance, if it would be a replacement for someone watching the Olympics on a on a broadcast system or on a you know streaming network that they had paid for, like Peacock or something like that. If it's a substitute, obviously that's an effect on the market. But anyway, so to answer to answer your question, why can't there be bright line rules? I think the answer to that is unfortunately the same answer that a lot of legal doctrine in the United States comes down to, which is that the entire system that we have set up, not just for copyright, but the entire system that we have set up is is what we call a common law system. Hmm. So uh, the way that copyright functions is, you know, it prevents you from doing things. That's the whole point of copyright is to give one party exclusive rights to do things and prevent others from doing those things. Right. But if you think about the First Amendment, it sort of goes in the opposite direction of that, right? The First Amendment says, hey, you have freedom of speech. And so for me to say you can't do that is sort of stumbling upon or tramping upon your your freedom of speech rights. Mm-hmm. And only in the case where I get to enforce it and the court is the one doing that, because as we've seen in other platform situations, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private actors. But, but when the court steps in and says, hey, stop doing that on behalf of someone whose copyright is being infringed, you end up with two different portions of the Constitution being at issue, the First Amendment and the copyright clause. So fair use is sort of a statutory attempt to thread that needle by creating this four-factor test. Um, But this four-factor test then has to be interpreted by the courts. And so as is the case when you're trying to decide, you know, is something first degree or second degree murder, you're kind of looking at the law as written and then the law as applied in prior similar cases. And so there's no bright line because the law as written doesn't set out a bright line. And it would be very difficult to quantitatively say, hey, six seconds or less is fine because there are there are films for sure where three seconds is enough to ruin the film, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. So if, for I guess anytime a DMCA notice does come up in which a the person who was struck feels that this might have been unfair. The only recourse is often to take it to court, which just seems like a very expensive endeavor for most. Well, so it's not exactly to take it to court. Uh, mm. It's to it's to call the bluff of the other party, right? <laughs> um, so and, and so, filing a counter notice is not filing a lawsuit. Filing a counter mm. notice is saying to the platform, "Hey, we think the other side is wrong here. Put it back up," and then the platform puts it up puts it back up. Right. Then it's up to the other side to say, no, really, we're right and file the lawsuit. Uh, so so filing the counter notice. And I think a lot of the the press around this has maybe gotten this a little not the Washington Post, obviously, but some of the smaller mm-hmm. outlets have gotten the press on this a little bit wrong, where they've said that, you know, the streamer is suing the IOC, which is not accurate at all. Mm-hmm. You know, another, th- uh, I guess, thread to the story is that uh, Ethan Klein of H3H3 Productions won a fair use case back in 2016, which had a judge establish some parameters of what fair use can fall into. If I recall correctly, the judge said the way um, H3H3 Productions had used someone else's content was essentially totally fair and was transformative enough. And um, I, I forget the exact verbiage, but, you know, is kind of the example to follow. Uh 
what's interesting is that Klein was initially advised by Ryan Morrison, who is the attorney, who is an attorney and also Langell's agent. Uh, Klein claims that Morrison's firm nearly lost him the case uh, when uh, forcing him and his wife to switch to a different firm altogether. Uh, given Morrison is advising Langell on this case, do you think his argument regarding this case specifically carries weight? So, you know, like we said, fair use is case by case. So sure. I think that the H3, H3 situation and, and this situation with the IOC have to be viewed, you know, on their own merits. Um, I also think I could be wrong, but I think that the H3, H3 case was decided at a trial court level and never appealed. So I don't think it actually yes. has any precedential value to another court. Um, so courts courts won't look at other trial courts decision typically won't look at other trial courts decisions for anything more than maybe a little bit of information they usually won't look at it and say well you know that district court in new york said this so my district court in la has to say the same thing that's that's not how federal courts work they might look at a, an appellate court decision like a like if it had gone from a new york court to a second district court of appeals they might look at that but even that wouldn't be binding on a california court because they're in the ninth circuit so until there's a supreme court precedent that says this wow. is fine <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't actually affect the decisions in another court um as to to ryan and his representation i don't know the details of what happened between ryan and h3h3 H3. i know clearly something happened or mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't be so publicly upset about it but i don't know what the details of that were um and I think that, you know, Ryan has seen a lot of counter notices in his in his time advising different streamers. I, I wouldn't be surprised if and I, I don't have any insider information here, but I wouldn't be surprised if Ryan had a very similar conversation to the one we're having where he kind of walked through. This is the this is what this does. These are the implications. And then ultimately, it's up to the client to decide what to do. Right, right, right. You know, I think we should also note that because uh, Morrison is Langell's agent, I believe there's probably an ethical boundary that's crossed to also represent him uh, as his lawyer. And I, I, I believe that they're going to bring in outside counsel if, if need be. Well, so I think there's two different questions there. On the ethics side, the, the California Rules of Professional Ethics do have um, there is a path for an attorney to also be an agent that is not mm -hmm. not any sort of, you know, by the terms, unethical situation, whether it's morally OK or just or, you know, in the eyes of the community. OK, the, you know, those are not things that you know, I'm not going to comment on that. Right. But I, <laughs> but there is a path where with the right disclosures and the right um, with the right boundaries set up between the two things. A lawyer can be part of both things. I also, and this, I may be mistaken about this, but I also think that in Morrison's case specifically, Evolved has grown to where it's not really just Ryan being Evolved, right? <laughs> there are a lot of other people involved there. So I, I don't know the details of that relationship either. Um, but there is, I, I will say there's a path to not violating any rules of ethics and acting as both attorney and agent. Um, whether it's advisable or not, I think is a different issue, right? Um, and then the second question of whether they they would bring in outside counsel, I think it's pretty common to bring in litigation counsel when you get to that point. So, for example, in my firm, we represent several streamers. We represent a lot of game developers. We don't litigate. So 
if we get a cease and desist letter, we can respond to that letter. But as soon as that other party files a lawsuit, and typically before, so we can prepare, we're working with outside counsel who does do that litigation service. Uh, litigation is a, a special area of legal services that you really, you kind of want somebody who does that all the time and knows the right. the court rules inside and out. And, you know, adding on, uh, Klein did mention in a video that, and again, like it should be noted that Klein himself is not a, a lawyer, um, that if this case does go in the wrong direction for Langell, and I guess per what you said earlier, if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, it could actually negatively transform how fair use is enacted within the United States. Um, do you have any reaction to that? It's it's a pretty far fetched thing, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, as I mentioned before, like the H three H three situation doesn't have any precedential value because it was a trial court, or has very little precedential value because it was mm-hmm. a trial court decision. Um, most, and that was frankly that was a summary judgment. I think if I'm remembering right, it didn't even go to trial, so it has even less value, really. <laughs> um, so in order for in order for the precedential value to happen, you have to you have to a have a lawsuit be filed. B, have that lawsuit followed through with to at least summary judgment or to trial. But um, I think that the likelihood of those two things happening here is fairly low. The IOC would likely settle or, you know, the streamer would likely settle if the IOC did file a lawsuit. So there wouldn't be any decision of precedential value. If that decision went against the streamer, I think, you know, there's a good chance he'd appeal because that would affect his livelihood overall. If the decision went against the IOC, I think it's unlikely the IOC would appeal because the IOC, mm. you know, they're after damages and they, if they don't get them, well, unless what they really want to do is establish a precedent and they're trying to bait someone into doing it. But it seems, it seems unlikely that's what's happening here. It seems more likely that they've hired an outside law firm or, or rights policing organization to pursue this. And the likelihood that they lose at trial and then appeal to the Ninth Circuit seems even lower, right? And then mm-hmm. if the Ninth Circuit rules, there's some there's some precedent there, especially the Ninth Circuit is often looked to as sort of a um a guiding light for other courts because it's it's the it's the circuit that presides over California. So it's where a lot of IP litigation comes from, a lot of litigation around copyright and technology and and you know the forefront of streaming and that sort of thing is all happening in California. So it, uh, so that would probably have a little bit more value than just a Supreme Court decision. But again, the likelihood that it even gets to that point is fairly low. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the Washington Post article, I, I cannot recall if it was the IOC or NBC, NBC specifically, but um, the argument was essentially made that the the Olympics has deals with certain advertisers and that it has commitments made to these advertisers and that it really cannot afford to let streamers essentially stream its content without, you know, the advertisers understanding or seeing that these eyeballs are directly being, are also being linked to the products that are being pushed. And, you know, considering that the Olympic viewership has been the lowest it's been in, uh, I don't know, a very, very long time, I kind of see exactly where, you know, the Olympics are coming from. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's true of any sporting event, right? The mm-hmm. the sporting events or even esports events, if you think about it, um, you know, they make money in 
a few ways, but the biggest way they make money is by selling those broadcast rights or those streaming rights. Right. And people are only going to buy those if they know that what they're getting is resellable to users. And the only way it's resellable is usually either by doing like a pay-per-view system or slapping ads in it. And if you can't sell it to advertisers because the eyeballs are too dispersed because there's rampant infringement, the whole system crumbles, right? And then you don't Mm -hmm. have sports anymore because, well, you don't have televised sports anymore or televised esports anymore because the eyeballs are too dispersed. Yeah. You know, I know that League of Legends and a few other esports have essentially created deals with top streamers to allow them to co-stream events. And I mean, it seems that the, the IOC is a little bit maybe behind the curve when it comes to the cutting edge of digital content distribution. I mean, it, it took a lot of hand-wringing for, for it to even allow skateboarding into the events. And there have been conversations around some kind of esports events happening at the Olympics for years, now, I want to say. So I don't know. It seems that it's going to be quite a while before the IOC embraces co-streaming. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the uh, given the streaming experience I've had trying to watch the Olympics this year through the legitimate channels um, behind the times, I think might be an understatement. Um, (laughs) So but uh, yeah, but that that being said, I think, you know, as as more and more uh, organizations catch up to this stuff, I think, you know, you're starting to see even I think NASCAR does some co-streaming now too, right? Um, so some some traditional type organizations have, have gotten have gotten wind that this is a way that they can create additional streams of revenues and reach new audiences that they might not otherwise reach. I, I don't know how many people watching that stream would have otherwise been watching a badminton event, right? That's so true, yes. <laughs> so had they just had had the had both sides been more proactive and decided how they were going to handle that beforehand, you know, A, you wouldn't have a DMCA notice, but B, both sides could have made more money potentially. Well, I guess ultimately it'll come down to if the IOC actually does anything with this. If it does, then I guess we we will have to bring you on for another episode. But if not, <laughs> I, I guess for all intents and purposes, the, the case is moot. Well, I, I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I, I think it, like I said, I think it's highly unlikely it moves forward too much. I think there might be a lawsuit filed. Um, if there is a lawsuit filed, I think it's unlikely that it goes to a place of any sort of precedential value, right? But it, it could. There's always the outside chance, right? I, I've been wrong on these things before. Hmm. Well, with that, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the .esports podcast network. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and share. For full transcripts of the show, head on over to ftwamad.com. To follow Brandon, you can find him at Brandon J. Huffman on Twitter. To follow me and my work over at Tom's Guide, you can find me at Ahmad on Twitter. This episode was produced by Henrique Demore and Jacob Wolf. Executive producer is Kevin Morris. With that, we'll catch you guys next week. Mm-hmm.